0: When we're talking about those toddler years, they are discovering that they are a completely separate entity from the adults in their lives, that they don't like the same things you like, or that they do like things you don't like. And part of that emerging fierce independence can sometimes show up as a meltdown.
1: Hi, everyone. So glad you're here. I'm your host, Mamie Welcome to the Teaching with Class podcast, where we explore topics that help educators deepen their connections with children and enhance their social, emotional, and cognitive growth and development. Today, we're talking about understanding and responding to tantrums and meltdowns. Our guest Megan Rustin shares her passion for supporting young children through these very difficult yet incredibly important experiences in their development of essential social and emotional capabilities. Megan has worn various hats in the early childhood education field from student to professional to educator and advocate she started her career as a teacher. During this time, she began working as a home visitor in a parenting program, supporting families with children ages five and under. After that adventure, she provided social-emotional interventions for school age children identified as having increased risk factors. And now we're very lucky to have her at Teachstone. I hope you'll enjoy the conversation. Megan, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. And I'm really excited for all of the information you can share with us and help us better understand and unpack tantrums and meltdowns and biting behavior and what that is and why children have them. Can you, can you just help us better understand that, please?
0: Yes, absolutely. So it is something that probably almost every teacher or parent has dealt with at some time (laughs) in their career. And that is actually sort of a radical notion. Here's a disclaimer, I'm going to, I feel it's my duty to share this radical notion. And that is that meltdowns and the other behaviors that you're talking about, so biting, uh, spitting, things like that are actually developmentally appropriate for the age groups that we're talking about.
1: Tell us that, more.
0: That does not mean that these behaviors are acceptable behaviors, right? No, we don't want or encourage children to bite or spit or have meltdowns, but that means they are appropriate responses for this age group, for this developmental level that we're talking about. Usually, when we're talking about meltdowns, meltdowns happen when a child feels overwhelmed by their emotions, or even sometimes by their environment, so by their surroundings. And they're a common response to frustration, sadness, and in toddlers, it's a common response to that emerging independence. So you can kind of see them as a milestone in that respect. Uh, Milestones are definitely no one's favorite milestone, but they kind of are a milestone nonetheless.
1: Yeah, because the kids are trying to do things on their own and they're getting frustrated because they don't quite have the dexterity or the capacity to do that. Is that what you mean? It becomes a frustrating experience for the children?
0: Yeah, so when we're talking about very young children, and we may get into this a little bit uh, deeper in a minute, but they don't have the language yet to really describe what they're feeling or what they might be experiencing or what they're frustrated about. But also, when we're talking about those toddler years, they are discovering that they are a completely separate entity from the adults in their lives, that they don't like the same things you like, or that they do like things you don't like. And so that part of that emerging fierce independence can sometimes show up as um, a meltdown.
1: I love how you call it fierce independence. I remember when my children were very young and they developed this deep, stubborn trait, um, yeah. a friend of mine gave me really good advice. And she said, you know, the same traits and characteristics that your children are exhibiting right now, that might be really difficult for you to handle now are the very things you need them to have to be successful in life. And so Absolutely. I it helped me to see it in a different way, right? Like this independence and this fierce streak of I can do this is not anything we want to squash in a young child. We want to, uh, you know, continue to help them to develop that, but also handle, you know, find a better way to handle their, their emotions as they're going through that. Can you help us exactly. understand? Yeah, what, what are some other triggers? You know, because I know that tantrums and meltdowns can come from a variety of things. So mm-hmm. what are some other triggers that we can that we can better understand so we can try to avoid those?
0: Well, when it comes to biting, there can be lots of reasons. And usually biting we see in like infant toddler years, less so in the preschool years. There's always a little wiggle room when you're talking about development. But for infants, it can be, you know, biting can come from frustration and anger too, but it might just be because they're tired, they're hungry. Um, when we're talking about babies, it can be a, a need for that oral stimulation. Babies explore the world with their hands, their eyes, and as any teacher knows, with their mouths. <laughs>
1: so, <laughs> Maybe the, let's lead with the mouth first, right? <laughs> right,
0: right. Everything. But I think when it comes to understanding sort of what is behind a meltdown or what's behind biting behavior, understanding those triggers, this is where a teacher's knowledge of child development and what's developmentally appropriate is really going to come in to play. For toddlers and even preschoolers to a degree, they're just learning how to be in control of these very big emotions. So we know that self-regulation is a skill that takes practice. It's not something that we're all born with. And it takes practice just like other skills young children are learning. So having that understanding. And then we also talked about language. So not having that expressive language capability yet to express what that child is feeling. They, you know, aren't at that level yet where they can say, you know, Mrs. Mimi, I really appreciate the time and effort you put into making my sweet potatoes today, but I feel like I'm in a rut. We've had sweet potatoes every day. And I'd like really (laughs) like if you could make me something else. That'd be lovely. It would be great, (laughs) right? But it doesn't look like that. Instead, you get a face full of
1: mashed potatoes. Yes.
0: Exactly, (laughs) right? Or on the floor. Yeah. So, another way to really kind of understand where these behaviors are coming from and to figure that out is to observe. Observe the child that you see, maybe with a pattern of biting or a pattern of meltdowns, is observe. Be close to that child during the day. See if you can figure out if there are certain times of the day where a child tends to be more upset or more frustrated, or if there are certain events that might trigger that frustration.
1: Yeah, and that sounds like we're really when we're observing we're looking for patterns, right? We're looking right. for, you know, antecedents that we can see that something's that's happening before that meltdown or that biting gets triggered so that we can help to find ways to help that child either be able to manage their emotions during that time and we can be there and be at the ready or we can even try to, you know, possibly strategically avoid the child having to experience those, those, uh, you know, more upsetting situations that happen um, as, as once we've noticed kind of what's leading into that behavior. Mm -hmm. So I, I agree. The observations is really helpful. Do you have any advice on like how, how long those observations should be or what, what people should be looking for specifically?
0: I think if you're trying to sort of nail down a pattern, right? Like, when does this happen? What part of the day does this happen? I think you don't need to necessarily set aside, a, you know, hour long window or anything, but I really think it is beneficial to at, to sort of be more mindful of this child throughout the day. Yeah. So if you are, for example, you're outside, being close to this child to see if, you know, any of these behaviors happen or during mealtime, being mindful, just being sort of aware throughout the day. And again, it doesn't need to be a terribly long time, um, small windows throughout the day. And a lot of times teachers have kind of their notepad and their pencil mm-hmm. in their pocket for those anecdotal, uh, anecdotal records throughout the day. So If you know you're going to intentionally be watching a child for these behaviors, having something like that in your apron or in your back pocket um, can be really helpful.
1: Yeah. And I would imagine it could be helpful um, after, you know, after everything's kind of calmed down to just quickly write everything you can remember right. about maybe how the child was, was acting before. Like, did they start to get agitated? Do they start to kind of rub their hair a lot or, you know, some, a little tell that you can start to notice this child is starting to kind of spiral into that, into that meltdown.
0: Right. And then also
1: noting, you know, what helped the child to overcome, right? So you can try to find that pattern as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly
1: and that really leads us into you know it's it's so important to understand you know, the nature of why children have these um, meltdowns and tantrums and bite, and to better understand that it's just part of, you know, an important part of their developmental process. But when teachers are in the middle of it, and a child's in the middle of it, and those emotions are really, really big, and we know when emotions are big, that's not the time to try to reason and logic and think with a child, right? They're they're just being overtaken by those emotions. Right. What are some strategies you can help um, educators and parents and caregivers think about to help resolve or reduce, you know, those big emotions during these times?
0: So I think it's really good to know, one, children do outgrow these behaviors.
1: <laughs> Yay!
0: <laughs> it is not something, I don't know personally, I don't know any typically developing children that graduated high school still biting we're having meltdowns, although teenagers are known for having their own different meltdown. type of meltdown. Absolutely. And that's <laughs> take their a phone. Whole with. Other. That's a whole other podcast. Right. right. But, but I don't know any children who typically developing who have gone on to be habitual biters or tantrum throwers. So they do. Children do outgrow these behaviors. And, you know, we talked a little bit about trying to prevent them and being proactive if you can. So we know that children thrive when they know what to expect and consistent with consistent routines, avoiding more demanding tasks at certain times of the day, avoiding power struggles.
1: That's a big one, especially
0: with with toddlers. So because the truth is the moment you've entered a power struggle with a young child, you've probably already lost hmm. Let's be real. So allowing just avoiding power struggles and allowing them to have as much independence. That is possible in the classroom, whatever, you know, obviously keeping safety in mind, but whatever they can do themselves, allowing them to do it. And, um, you know, offering those moments of positive guidance. And if you do see that frustration building stepping in and saying, you know, hey, I see it looks like you're getting frustrated. Can I help you figure it out? Sometimes as adults, we want to come in and fix the fix the problem and save the child fix from, the you know, save yeah. the day. Sometimes though, I know I've had moments where that actually sort of escalated the frustration where I wanted to come in and fix it. And that sort of actually um, aggravated the child even more. So, you know, being proactive and trying to prevent a meltdown or that frustration is is huge. We all know sometimes that doesn't happen, right? So sometimes a meltdown will, sometimes you just find yourself in the throes of a meltdown and you kind of have to help this child ride it out. A big piece of trying to help the child kind of through these big emotions is controlling your own emotions.
1: Ah, So we're trying, of course, we're helping the child manage these emotions, but emotions are are contagious, right? So we're, they're, they're they're feeling all, uh, you know, upset and frustrated is likely getting us upset and frustrated as well. Um, So how, how can we, how can we help them manage their emotions while we're also managing our emotions? And I'm assuming we're modeling for them through, through the process as well.
0: Modeling is huge, so I would suggest that the conventional wisdom to ignore a meltdown is not going to be the most effective strategy, and ignoring a meltdown can actually be really counterproductive. Ignoring a meltdown can prolong the, that interaction, it can prolong the meltdown, and it's not teaching the child what we think it's teaching them. That includes sort of sending a child away to a quiet or a cozy corner alone for them to, quote, calm down. So I, I know I have seen that a lot in some of the classrooms I've worked in or observed. A teacher may say, okay, I can see you're really upset. Why don't you go sit over here until you can calm down? Then we'll talk about it. And that starts out okay, right? I can see you're upset. Acknowledging a child's emotions, that starts out okay. But really, we just said that self-regulation is a skill that takes practice and guidance from adults. So when you send that child away alone, they're not thinking through their emotions. They're not thinking about why they're upset. They're just upset. So staying with the child not ignoring, but also, um, I think for biting and for meltdowns, you know, acknowledging a child's emotions as opposed to dismissing or downplaying them like, Oh, it's not that big of a deal. Right. You'll be fine. It's okay.
1: Because for them, it is a huge deal right now.
0: It is a big deal or they wouldn't be so upset. Right. And imagine, imagine All of us, I think, or most of us have felt dismissed. We know what Mm -hmm. that feels like to have our feelings dismissed. And it doesn't make us feel any better. It doesn't help us get over whatever we're angry about. It can actually do the opposite. It makes us sometimes even more angry.
1: Well, and it also makes children feel like certain emotions in the classroom are bad. Right. right. And, and we don't ever want a child to feel bad because they're feeling upset or angry or frustrated. Right. Because that's what they're feeling. They're feeling it for a reason. Something caused it. And like you said, one of our goals in these early years is help children develop self-regula- self-regulation self and that's regulating the good, bad and the ugly. Right. And regulating all of these, all of these feelings and so how do, we, how do we help children to better understand where these feelings are coming from and how to overcome them um, when, they're, when they're feeling them? So I guess my question is, how do we help children to be able to calm down and then be able to have those conversations? You said having them go by themselves is not necessarily helping them with that guidance. So what would you suggest in those moments?
0: Well, for a meltdown, I would say, first of all, you need to help that child return to a regulated state because just like you said earlier, there's no problem solving going on when someone is unregulated, even in adults. Right. So staying with that child and helping them return, providing comfort, like I said, um, acknowledging those emotions instead of dismissing them. Label the emotions that you see the child experiencing, give them the words because they may not be able to describe what they're feeling themselves. So labeling those emotions, giving them that sort of emotional vocabulary to help describe what they might be feeling. Then when they are calm, help them find a solution. Can I help you figure this out? You know, I, I saw Katie took the block from you and you got really upset. So acknowledging and telling that, you know, I would be upset too if someone took my blocks. How can we go back instead of yelling or hitting? How can we go back? Can we tell, can you tell Katie I was still using those? So giving them the vocabulary of their emotions, but then also helping them find a solution once they've reached that regulated state.
1: And what do we do when a child is the, is the victim, right? They, they were, they were, they were two, two children, one, one just bit another, or one just hurt another child. How do we help in those moments? How do we help to resolve and, and create learning opportunities through yeah. those moments?
0: Yeah. So similarly, when, and again, if we're talking about toddlers, It might look a little, if a toddler bites, how you respond to that might look a little differently than when an infant is biting. So Mm -hmm. for toddlers and preschoolers, if a child, if there's an altercation and a child bites another child, you might approach the child who did the biting and say something like, we do not bite. Biting hurts. And I cannot let you hurt, you know, Katie or anyone else still calm keeping your own temper you know in check but firm but i think it's important not to just stop there so nacy actually gives some really great resources on how to handle biting in the classroom and sort of what to do next so once you've told that child you know biting's not okay biting hurts You want to respond to the child who's been hurt. Mm -hmm. Model that empathy and provide comfort. Then go back and talk to the child who did the biting. So trying to find out what led up to it. But when you're addressing the child who was hurt, you know, you can say something like, I'm so sorry you're hurting. That must have really hurt. Do you need some ice? You know, so modeling empathy to the child who did the biting. Then going back and talking to the child who did the biting and saying, you know, having them help find a solution. So having them kind of practice that empathy as well. So maybe, you know, how can we help? How can we help your friend feel better? Maybe you can go get him a Band-Aid. But still restating the rule, talking about how the child could respond later on in a similar situation.
1: And what if it becomes a habit? Like we we know there's some kids who are habitual biters or habitual right. tantrum throwers. What what do you do in those situations where you feel like you've gone through the process but it just kind of keeps happening?
0: If biting becomes a habit, I think then it is super important to reach out to the family of that child and involve them in a solution. So if you have found if you have you see a pattern of biting with a child, right? You're going to want to observe, like we were saying before. Go back and observe and see if you can find out what's triggering the biting. If it's anger, frustration, fatigue, hunger, hunger, sleep. Right. <laughs> right. But also talking to the family and seeing if they have strategies at home that they're mm-hmm. using.
1: Or if they've seen any of that behavior, because possibly right. it's only at the school because at home they don't, have, they don't have another sibling or, um, you know, they don't have the same situations happening.
0: Because I know right. at
1: times parents have like, well, we don't ever experience that at home or anywhere else. It's just at school.
0: Right. A lot of times that is the case, because if you've got a toddler at home and there's no other kids in the home to bite, mm-hmm. then they're not, you know, and they're not biting their parents It's not going to be as significant an issue at home, but I think absolutely it's important to involve the family, talk about what you have noticed, what you've observed, um, and sharing that with them. Um, Suggest some strategies to the family that you are talking about putting in place. So talking about this is how we deal with biting, or this is what I've said to your child when, you know, when they bite. I think it's important to also understand that when you have a plan in place, it might take a while. So even though we've talked about some effective strategies, if biting has become a habit, put some strategies in place, but really understand it may take a bit. Again, that idea of what's Developmentally appropriate.
1: I I would just add in, you know, that kind of the common, you know, a theme that I'm hearing you say is to really invite the parents in being part of the solution process, right? And I think it's an opportunity to teach the parents about what biting is. We certainly wouldn't want to alarm the parents or make the parents feel that their child is being labeled, targeted as a biter. um, But really, just come at it of an opportunity for all of us to learn together to better understand the child. Um, Get the parents perspective and maybe even also find out what what calms their child down at home, because it's possible that you, the teacher at the school, haven't been doing those same strategies that might really be very helpful in the classroom.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And you can always put something in place. You can have a plan in place. Try it for several weeks. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It takes time. It takes time. But then you can always come back and reevaluate and sort of readdress with the parents and kind of reassess the situation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Once you've brought them into the mix, you definitely want to, you know, continue that communication um, and let them know how things are going at school and your continued observations um, so that it's a learning process that you're going through together. And Megan, I wonder what you would say at, at the end of this really rich conversation, you would really be hoping that that. You know, caregivers and parents and teachers are walking away with as they as they think about either their own children or the kiddos in their classrooms that are going through some of these challenges.
0: Gosh, so many things, right? But <laughs>
1: you have to narrow it down. <laughs> I, yeah.
0: So, first of all, really understanding that even though these are challenging behaviors, even unwanted behaviors, they are developmentally appropriate. They're
1: important. Yeah.
0: They are developmentally appropriate and sometimes can signify upcoming milestones. Also, we know that all behavior is communication. Yep. So really pay attention to the signals that these children are sending you. Stay close and step in if you need to. If you see a child becoming frustrated or you see a child who may be getting ready a bite and supporting them with these strong emotions, being there to suggest other ways for them to express these really strong emotions.
1: I love it when you talk about behavior as communication, right? And, and that's why words are so powerful because it helps kids have another way of expressing themselves. And so my walk, my takeaway is considering how to ensure that, that teachers and children are developing emotional literacy, really understanding and naming those words and feelings, and then also how to really continue our journey of supporting children with self-regulation. And thank you, Megan, so much for coming with us today and talking about This is a very important topic and sharing your experiences with us.
0: I'm happy to be here, Mamie, anytime.
1: If you're interested in continuing this conversation with other educators, I'd encourage you to join our class learning community. You can share or learn more strategies with thousands of educators around the world. The link to join is in the show notes available on your listening platform. Also in the show notes is a link to a few really helpful blog posts on this topic that I encourage you to check out. Thanks for joining us today, and I'll see you again next week. But until then, be humble, be teachable, and always keep learning.